this is Jim O'Donnell from the Taos Land Trust. You are listening to our podcast about land, water, culture, and conservation in northern New Mexico. So today I'm talking to uh, authors Eric Kuhn and John Fleck about their new book, Science Be Damned, How Ignoring Inconvenient Science Drained the Colorado River. I wanted to talk uh, a little bit today about the how the Colorado River and the challenges facing the Colorado River and how it's managed and how science plays into the management of the Colorado River gives us a window into many of the problems with managing water throughout the um, throughout the American West and the Southwest in particular and particularly in the face of climate change. Eric Kuhn. Uh, recently retired, worked for the Colorado River Water Conservation District from 1981 to 2018, including 22 years as the general manager. The district is a water utility and policy agency covering most of the Colorado River Basin within Colorado. And John Fleck is the director of the University of New Mexico's Water Resource Program, a Colorado River expert. He wrote uh, the book, Water is for Fighting Over and Other Myths About Water in the West. And he runs a blog called Inkstain. Is that correct, John? Yes. Yeah. And that is a, that's a very informative blog about um, uh, water issues in the West. There's, there's a Colorado River section, but I, I definitely always get a lot of my information about um, water issues in New Mexico, particularly with the Rio Grande from from your blog. And so I really appreciate you you doing that. Yeah, let's just dive right in. So, you know, the Colorado River provides water for 40 million people. The flows in the Colorado River are shrinking. And I'm not sure if everybody who listens knows this, but um, people who watch water management throughout the West um, typically have an idea in their head that when the original water sharing agreement on the Colorado River was made in the 1920s, that states were just relying on bad data, that we just didn't know enough about how the, the, the groundwater and the, the flow systems, um, the precipitation system works. But your book challenges that idea, and you guys make the case that water managers at that time had good data, but they chose to ignore that. That's something key I wanna, I wanna focus in on today is, is why we ignore the science. So what drove you guys to write this book? Well, and this is Eric, and, and basically one, there were several reasons, um, uh, but I was the, been working on the Colorado River for nearly four decades now. And um, just like you said, uh, when I came into my job in the early 80s, uh, I, I was quickly told about the compact. In fact, that the compact was a, uh, it, it had the unfortunate accident of being negotiated after 20 years of very, very wet hydrology. Uh, and it was that accident led us to the uh, over-appropriation of the river, if you want to call it, which uh, has cascaded into uh, lots of problems. And, uh, and in the late 90s and the early 2000s, as I started to explore it more, I found that... Uh, uh, indeed, that was not the case, <laughs> that our understanding of Colorado River hydrology, really by the mid-1920s, was fairly sophisticated, uh, and, and, and they understood that 
that period from about 1905 to 1922, where they were negotiating the compact, was uh, wet. At least a few did. And uh, that just did not fit the dialogue for where the negotiators wanted to go. Uh, so that's the reason um, I sought out John to help me and, and uh, put, uh, put my technical information into, into something that was readable. <laughs> And, th- and this is John. I have long been fascinated by the Colorado River. It's the river that I've played on and, and drunk its water and boated it and, um, you know, eaten food grown with its water my whole life, the whole 60 years of my life. Um, and I, too, came to the project believing the conventional wisdom. In fact, I wrote it in my last book. <clears throat> we allocated the river's water during an unusually wet period, what rotten luck. And one of the things that I've been interested in before I became an academic, writing these books, I had a career as a newspaper journalist, and I've always been interested in how, as a society, in our political and policy processes, we go about using science and how we try to encourage the use of the best possible science And when Eric convinced me that the conventional story was wrong, I just became fascinated with the question of how this happened. Why did they ignore the science? What was the reason why inconvenient good science was ignored in favor of convenient bad science? And um, and that led a multi-year dive um, by Eric and I into the old technical documents and historical records, really trying to understand how those decisions were made a century ago. I think right now we're facing this issue in the nation of uh, whether it be the, the coronavirus or um, climate change where we're, we're ignoring the science and, and dealing with that. And we think about that, or at least I have thought about that in terms of that that's kind of a recent development that really, you know, over the course of the 20th century, our society has been pretty good about relying on, on the scientific data. But but this is indicating that this may be a um, a feature of, um, of of how we do things in this country. Motivated reasoning is just a huge problem for human beings. We have our values and our desires, and we tend to want to look no further than a convenient piece of information that supports the thing we already think we want to do anyway, that is consistent with our values, whether it's Um, using more water out of a river, whether it's continuing to burn fossil fuels to support the convenience of driving our big pickup truck, um, whether it is um, opening our society early when we're in the midst of a pandemic. We have this tendency to seek out the things that confirm our biases, to believe them, to find ways to discount those things that um, that conflict with our biases and our values and our sort of cultural identities, and it's it's a really really difficult problem. And you know, once Eric and I dove into the old, old records, and and I came to realize how that mistake had been made. In some sense, it was unsurprising. You know, this the overcoming bias in absorbing and making use of science is a really, really challenging human problem. Yeah, and, and just as a, a simple matter, you know, go back to what they were trying to do and or doing in 1922, 
was dividing up a pie. The pie was the amount of water that was available in the Colorado for future development. Um, it was it had the development of the river was enormously important politically uh, into entities that that sought the development, uh, you know, of the the settlement of the Southwest. Uh, and irrigation uh, was a way to do it, and the production of power was the way to do it. So there was a great deal of pressure on uh, entities to come together and come to an agreement, and then they could all go to Congress uh, and and pass the kind of legislation that would be necessary to fund things like the Boulder Canyon Project Acts, which, which built uh, Hoover Dam and the All-American Canal, and then ultimately the Colorado River Storage Project Act, which uh, built the uh, projects like um, Glen Canyon Dam, which backs up Lake Powell, and the San Juan Chama Project, which uh, central New Mexico now relies on water that's imported from the Colorado River Basin. Uh, it's very southern, southern Colorado is where they divert the water. And just as a simple matter, um, a bigger pie was easier to divide up than a smaller pie. Uh, it just made everyone happier uh, if they were big, dividing it up. And, and I, in some ways, it's, it's not, not like state budgets, but the federal government budgets. It's, uh, you know, it's easier to, uh, to, uh, to, to divide up and to budget if you have more uh, money than it is when you don't have money. Uh, and they, they face those same uh, issues back in the 20s. And, you know, they decided that, uh, that they had enough water to come to a political agreement. And then when the information surfaced that they didn't, uh, their reaction was to basically uh, challenge the messengers, um, as we do today, and challenge the science and uh, and move on, and uh, uh, that that history set a precedent. Uh, what they did in the twenties uh, was repeated often uh, again, really up through the nineteen sixties, uh, where there was an interesting twist. By the nineteen sixties, we couldn't ignore the reality of how much water was in the river because we'd had another. 40 years of gauge records, uh, but instead of changing development, we said we were going to augment the river by importing the water that we thought we had from places like the Columbia River. John, um, to step back for people listening to this, can you just describe the Colorado River watershed in basic terms just so people can get an idea of what we're talking about? Yeah, so so this, John, it's, it's a quarter million... Um, square miles of um, covering the southwestern United States stretches from you know Wyoming and Utah in the north down through Colorado and a uh, piece of New Mexico um, uh, the river um, itself flows through the canyon country of southern Utah and northern Arizona the Grand Canyon and kind of emerges from the canyon country into the deserts of what we call in the lingo the lower Colorado River Basin, where you have uh, Nevada and Arizona and California in the United States using and depending on the river's water, um, in, especially in these places, in this really rich, productive agricultural bottomlands, these valleys, desert valleys where you can farm year-round. And then the river flows or did flow out um, uh, through across the U.S.-Mexico border down through Sonora and Baja to 
um, the uh, Gulf of California. Um, the river doesn't flow out that way anymore. So you had this vast landscape that is a very, very dry landscape. And so for significant parts of it, the Colorado River is the only or the primary significant source of water supply. So when you had, um, you know, the indigenous communities, you know, lived on the land with a small footprint, there were not a lot of people. Um, you know, they lived close to the water, and took very little of it, um, changed its flow not at all. Um, and when the colonial settler immigration waves from both the east and, um, and from the south um, swept across this land and tried to bring it into the um, large-scale national and global economy by building big cities and farming large tracts of land, the only real option you had if you wanted to do those things, which are what we as a nation thought we wanted to do 100 years ago, um, your only real option was that river, to take that water, to move it to these dry places and make them bloom. And so what was then the compact in 1922, right? Yeah. What did this compact say? Yeah, well, the, the compact is... Uh, what is something that is allowed by the Constitution of the United States, which says with congressional approval, um, the states can can make agreements among themselves. Uh, the, the, the prerequisite, of course, it is, has to be approved by uh, Congress. Uh, and, and it was originally put in there to deal with things like the boundaries. Uh, you know, when rivers uh, meander back and forth, uh, like the Ohio River or the Mississippi River, or when there are islands, like uh, between New Jersey and New York, uh, who had those islands. And so um, the, the founders of, understood that there would be needed a way, we needed a way for that the, that the states could enter into agreements among themselves. Um, and this was done, you know, not very often, but there were a number of compacts that were done in the 1800s, almost all related to, um, uh, you know, to boundary issues. Uh, and then in the 1900s, as we were developing the Colorado River, there was a, um, a, con a concept called first in time is first in right, the prior appropriation doctrine. And that has largely everything oh, west of the, the, uh, of the Colorado, Kansas border, if you want to call it, everything to the west, uh, all of the states use prior appropriation. Those who use the water first, who make a beneficial use of the water first, are, have the highest priorities. And New Mexico has that, as does Colorado, as does Arizona. And this doctrine of prior appropriation um, set up a situation where development was occurring in the lower basin, especially in California, at a rapid rate. That scared the other states because what they feared was, and for good reason, uh, that the concept of first in time is first in right would be applied uh, to the Colorado River. And that meant, you know, Los Angeles and the Imperial Irrigation District and the big power dams in, the, in, the, in, in and below Grand Canyon that were being proposed at the time would have senior rights. And those rights would, would prevent Utah and uh, Colorado uh, from developing uh, water in the future. 
You know, so largely, uh, John and I describe the compact as a social agreement, if you want to call it, a social pact between the faster-growing states in the south, in the southern part of the basin, and the slower-growing states, where under this compact, they agreed to leave a little, you know, some water in the future uh, for the states of the upper basin, which were growing at a very much slower at the time. And this compact essentially divided, the, they couldn't divide the water among, up among the states, which was their original intent. So they took the next step. They said, let's divide it up among two basins. And the, the dividing line is basically the canyon country in Arizona, Lee Ferry, uh, which is a few miles south of the Arizona-Utah border. And those, some, so it, it was intended to provide a stable water supply for the southern states and for the northern states within the basin. And unfortunately, you know, what they thought they had at the time was about 20 million acre-feet of water, and they were only going to uh, divide up a portion of that. So they did 8.5 for the lower basin, 7.5 for the upper basin, and a 4 to 5 million acre-foot surplus. And today, we're, the river's providing about 13 million acre-feet. Uh, so the bottom line is when you add in Mexico, which uh, got water by treaty in 1944, we've allocated legally 17.5 million acre-feet of water, right to use 17.5 million acre-feet of water, on a river that in the last 20 years has maybe been 13 million acre-feet. That's the core problem facing decision makers in the Colorado River Basin today. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's intense. That's quite a, quite a deficit there of, of, of water. You're, you're, you're bringing us up to this, this issue of it, what is the result of ignoring science? Obviously, the, um, the water was over-allocated, but what's been then the, the knock-on effects of over-allocating water? So this is John. What we did was then proceed over a century, slowly but surely, and really it took the better part of a century to build all the physical infrastructure to take that water out of the river and send it places. So here in New Mexico, we got the San Juan Chamo project, which delivers drinking water to my house here in Albuquerque. Um, uh, there were many diversions across the continental divide up in Colorado, where Eric lives to places like Denver um, in Salt Lake city in Utah. We took water out and sent it there. I pumped water uphill from um, the, Colorado River Canyon and Lake Mead to Las Vegas and San Diego and Los Angeles and all these places. Um, and it, it took us a long time to build all the infrastructure to begin to deliver all the water that was promised in the compact. So for, for much of the 20th century, this overallocation was not, not a problem. By the end of the late 1990s, when we built the last big straw sucking water out of the Colorado River, which is a project called the Central Arizona Project, which delivers water to Phoenix and Tucson, we finally had crossed the threshold between um, uh, unused apportionment and overusing the um, available water that the river could actually supply. As luck would have it, we finally reached that point in the late 1990s, around 2000, at a time when we'd just come through a wet decade and the reservoirs were full. So we didn't feel that effect for a while. But early in the 2000s, we began to see the reservoirs dropping um, because we were taking more water out 
than nature was putting in. So the reckoning began 20 years ago. <coughs> and um, the reservoirs have been dropping and dropping and dropping ever since. Um, and so now we face the challenge of all these people all across the West who have the expectations of a big supply of water based on those allocations of nearly a century ago. And the water's just not there um, to, to meet their needs. And so that's the challenge we have now is like, how do we untie this Gordian knot that we created a century ago? And, and this is Eric. I will add to that the complication um, had had we would have a problem today, and that's the message of the book of overallocation. Had there, there not been climate change, which is reducing the flow of the river, but you add to what John said the fact that we built these projects to take more water than was available in the in the in the in the river, and then along and we started to see this in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s. We've really since the 2000s we've really seen it. Rising temperatures and the aridification of the watershed in the upper basin have reduced flows. So we have two problems that are on top of each other. The first is this overallocation of the river uh, that was, in, in effect, put in place by the by the construction of these projects based on more water than was there. And it's complicated. It's it's made even worse by the fact that, that we all now anticipate, most of the science suggests, almost all of the science suggests, that in the future, there's going to be less water. Uh, so when I said there's 17.5 million acre-feet of legal rights for a 13 million acre-foot river, uh, by 2050 or 2100, it might be 10 or 11 million acre-feet because of climate change. Uh, you know, so it's a, it's a problem that's made worse uh, by climate change. And this John again. Let me just. Eric's a modest guy, but let me brag on um, on Eric, on my collaborator. <laughs> Go for that. Really fun person to work with because he's been in the middle of Colorado River Basin water management these last decades. But he is doing this from a place on the Colorado River, actually on, up on the Roaring Fork near the Colorado River near Glenwood Springs, where Eric can kind of look out the window of one of the houses of his house and see Mount Sopris, which is one of the big mountains in that part of the um, Colorado River Basin where you can see snow. And it's that winter snowpack that melts and brings us our summer water. And Eric, being in the middle of water management up there, was one of the early people to notice this change going on. The idea that for a given amount of snow falling in the mountains, we were just seeing less water in the river. And you know, I think part of that comes from Eric just being in that environment seeing the snow and thinking about the water and the stream and the rivers around his house. Um, and, and so Eric was one of the early ones to begin trying to think about how do we incorporate, how do we listen to this new science of climate change as we are trying to figure out how to manage a drinking river um, in the midst of population growth in the West. Hi. This is Christine Ortez, Executive Director of the Taos Land Trust. For 30 years, we've been keeping working lands in working hands. To do that, we need your help. Please donate at tauslandtrust.org slash donate. Thank you. This is Jim O'Donnell, and you're listening to the Taos Land Trust podcast. We're talking with Eric Kuhn and John Fleck. 
They are the authors of the book Science Be Damned, How Ignoring Inconvenient Science Drained the Colorado River. Recently in the journal Science, uh, there was a study that found that between 2000 and 2018, that time period was the driest 19-year span in the southwestern United States and northwestern Mexico since the late 1500s and the second driest period since the year 800. Um, we're in a climate change-fueled mega drought, um, drier than anything that we've seen in, in literally centuries. Uh, so I just want to hammer home that point a little bit that um, uh, even though you have this over-allocation of water, you also uh, have a, an increasingly drying west and, and watershed, Colorado River watershed. Um, so how, how are we dealing with this? We've got, um, what are people doing? How are water managers dealing with this, this issue? Well, this is John. So, so one of the important points that Eric and I make in the book is that um, one piece of the science that we have not, we argue, done a good enough job in incorporating into our planning for the future is a recognition that we are already being extraordinarily successful, especially in our urban areas, at using less water. So if you go across the Colorado River Basin, and pretty much every major urban area that's using Colorado River water from you know, Denver down through Albuquerque, Phoenix and Tucson, Los Angeles, San Diego, Las Vegas, um, water use is going down. And I'm not talking about just per capita water use. We're talking about total water use. Water conservation efforts in all these communities are extraordinarily successful so that conservation is pushing demands down faster than population is pushing them up. So we figured out how to use less water. And I think that's a really important um, central point. Um, it's clearly not enough. The reservoirs are still dropping or at the very least stabilizing um, in the midst of some um, um, it's kind of lucky, but years now and then. Um, so, so we shouldn't assume that we're just um, ignoring this problem. A lot of really successful water conservation work going on. Um, and the other thing that's going on, and this is something Eric has been involved in for his career up until his retirement, is trying to figure out ways to renegotiate the rules to do a better job of dealing with the shrinking river given the overallocation problems. Yeah, that's a question I have. Do I understand it right that the compact comes up for renewal in um, in just six years in 2026? Is that right? This is Eric. The, the compact is forever. Okay. Um, it, it can be changed with the unanimous approval of all eight parties. So with the seven states and Congress uh, ever wanted to do it, uh, but so as a practical matter, the compact is forever. Um, what is what? But we operate the river under um, uh, essential rules. The compact is one overarching one, but we also have the Upper Colorado River Basin Compact. We have the Boulder Canyon Project Act. We have the Colorado River Storage Project Act, the Mexican Treaty, and the 1968 Colorado River Basin Act that's collectively called the Law of the River. Salinity control and some other things are in there as well. And we actually have a lot of flexibility under those those umbrella legislation and rules to operate the river. 
And so we operate the river on what we call now the 2007 interim guidelines, uh, which um, we pl- which were in conformance with uh, long-range operating criteria. So it's a set of rules that tell the Bureau of Reclamation, the Secretary of Interior uh, approves them, how we're going to operate these big reservoirs and how we're going to deliver water where the Secretary is the water master, especially in the lower basin. And these 2007 interim guidelines, which were really important to how we operate the river, they expire um, at the end of water year 2026. And they are going to be renegotiated. Uh, So they're different than the compact. No one, I don't think, is seriously talking about changing the compact. But under the law of the river, and I think this is something that John and I talk about in our book, which is a step forward, is we now we now recognize that there's a lot of flexibility uh, in how we move forward, and we're going to have to use that flexibility to come up with a new set of operating rules uh, post 2026 uh, to deal with the reality of overallocation and the and the continuing impacts of climate change. And that's going to be a very challenging task. So this is John. Let me just add that one of the things that has already been done. Um, is a set of agreements under the law of the river. There's, there's a great line from Pat Mulroy, who was the former director of Las Vegas's water agency, that the law of the river is whatever seven states can agree the law of the river is. So as long as we all can agree on new ways of tweaking the rules to deal with realities, we can pretty much go ahead. And so one of the tweaks that has gone on over the last um, 15 years is a sort of creeping change in the allocation rules. So so right now, as we speak, we're operating under rules where as Lake Mead, which is the major reservoir that delivers water to the lower states, Nevada, to you know, Las Vegas and LA and, and Phoenix and Mexico, um, as the lake drops, everybody has agreed they'll take less water out of the lake. In other words, they have sort of agreed to kind of reduce their allocations in a sort of graduated way to try to respond to drought and climate change um, and the overuse problem. So we're already sort of squeezing the allocations down a little bit. And those are the kinds of changes that we need to do more of in this renegotiation um, with the current set of rules expiring in, was it five years we got to do this, Eric? Yeah. Yeah. Soon. Soon. And, And is there a discussion of building more, more dams, more pipelines? I mean, what what are some of the other options that people are looking at to to deal with this? Obviously, we cannot create water out of thin air, so to speak. <laughs> no, uh, we, we this is Eric. We can't create water out of thin air, but you know, there's a there is going to be a continuing discussion of infrastructure. Um, there, the climate change is is doing some funny things, and then. One of them um, is, I think, the folks at Denver Water who study this very, you know, they have climate scientists on their staff. They basically see that they're going to have to have a different set of infrastructure in the future to deal with climate change. Because you're going to see drier dries and maybe occasionally wetter wets. Um, you know, the big the big storms are go- are going to have more moisture in them they're going to because of their higher temperatures and it's it's kind of like the horrible dam issue so there's infrastructure requirements may include more storage 
uh, at a local level to deal with the uh, impact of the fact that we're going to have to capture those big, rare, big, wet years. The other thing that's going on is people are moving water in a better way, managing water in a better way between their groundwater use and, and their surface water use, which is Albert, what is Albuquerque has done. Uh, and, and so infrastructure in terms of, of armoring ourselves, especially the big cities, against climate change, against variability will happen. Drilling wells, putting in more reuse. Reuse is a very infrastructure-driven process because you got to treat that water, then you got to pipe it back to places like golf courses and lawns. Uh, so I, I think the climate change will accelerate the need for new infrastructure. I don't think we're going to see any more classic big dams on the main stem of the Colorado River. Quite frankly, we can't fill the ones we have. Uh, but that's different than Denver, um, you know, investing or Las Vegas investing, Southern California investing a lot of money in new infrastructure that will reuse the existing supplies or perhaps even uh, store locally more water. It is, John, there's a fascinating project getting underway in Southern California um, where a lot of the treated wastewater is, is uh, discharged in the ocean. Um, and big Southern California water agencies getting together collectively to start um, working on building a big new um, reuse plant to clean that water up further so that it could be reused within Southern California. One of the big investors in that is Las Vegas. Um, Las Vegas doesn't need the water right now. Las Vegas is actually a remarkable success story. But Las Vegas is looking at the long run and thinking there may be risks. And, and they wouldn't be... You know, you would be piping water from L.A. back up to Las Vegas. They'd just do an accounting swap, and Las Vegas would use some Colorado River water that would have other gone, otherwise gone to L.A., and L.A. can use um, then some of this wastewater. And you're seeing a lot of this kind of really creative, collaborative efforts across the different states and different regions in um, dealing with the sort of collective problem we have. That's one of the things we've seen here in northern New Mexico with um, some of the acequias that uh, traditionally were seen as, as in constant competition with each other for um, or different people along the acequias or, or acequias that came off of larger systems um, that in these dry years that we've had recently, there's been a lot more cooperation and a lot less fighting and they figured out how to move this water around um, fairly well, considering that there's less of it. That's great. Yeah, and, and this is Eric, and, and the, you brought up the acequias, and you know there are some big equivalents of those in the, in the lower basin, the big agricultural districts in Palo Verde, the Imperial Valley, central Arizona, uh, you know, the, along the main stem of the Colorado River in the Yuma area. You know, and these are, in many ways, this is the, the fruit, you know, the, this is where we get our uh, winter vegetables and our lettuce. And, and this is where they grow lots and lots of, of still cattle feed and things like that. And, and quite frankly, they have the senior rights because they were there. The Imperial Irrigation District started, you know, in 1901. Uh, you know, Los Angeles and Phoenix's use of the water at that time was negligible and, and it, it the, in, the municipal demands have been growing, uh, and they have the, the junior rights, but they need the certainty. So what we talk about in the book and what's really important 
is that we are going to see transfers in the future. It's inevitable. We're going to see water move from the big agricultural districts, um, including on the front range of Colorado, um, to municipalities. Um, you know, it's uh, when I started work, the Colorado Big Thompson Project, which is the largest Trans Mountain diversion uh, out of the Colorado River in Colorado, goes into the South Platte. They were predominantly an agricultural pro- project. Today, because of growth north of Denver, they're predominantly a municipal project. And that will continue. Uh, and the question is, how do we come up with a cooperative win-win uh, uh, solutions where we move, inevitably move water uh, from uh, agriculture uh, to, um, you know, to the urban areas? You know, and, and, and that is in when, when you're dealing in, the, in New Mexico or western Colorado, we grow crops at the margins, uh, short growing seasons. When you start talking about the lower basin uh, folks in Yuma, then you're talking about important food supplies for the, whole, for the nation as a whole. And isn't it true that in, in the southwestern United States, um, uh, agriculture uses far more water than uh, urban areas? That's true. And the Colorado River as a system as a whole um, they use about 60 to 70 percent, consume about 60 to 70 percent. Um, a reservoir evaporation is another 15 or so, 15 to 20, and municipal use is another 15 percent or so. Uh, so on the, on the Colorado River system as a whole, agriculture is still the big consumer of water. There's a lot of optimism, what I'm hearing um, from you guys, that there's a lot of uh, positive things that are happening. But then I have to ask, is... Do, do you think science is still being ignored uh, in these, in these decision-making processes now? This is Eric. Um, I think there, there still is a tendency um, to want to ignore the science as, as the science, if the science and the science is really suggesting really outcomes that are very difficult. And, I can only say, you know, I, I think we are much more attuned to the science. The, we've just issued a big report on the state of the science. Everyone's involved in that. But you can only have to go back as far as 2007 when we negotiated the interim guidelines and climate change was well established by then that we ultimately, to cut a deal, we sort of had to turn our eye to, to what the science was saying. I hope that doesn't happen again. I'm, I think I don't think it will happen again, but it's sort of human nature uh, the, to repeat the mistakes of the 1922 compact, which is to uh, when when it's easier to reach an agreement by ignoring inconvenient science to do so. We're seeing that right now with the pandemic. This is John. You know, one of the things that's been really encouraging to me um, in the in the um, years since the last. Um, election in the midst of a, of a national administration that has been um, uh, ignoring climate change science at a sort of national scale, um, you still see the professionals within the Bureau of Reclamation, the Water Agency, they're doing climate change science, they're looking at ways to incorporate that climate change science in the modeling um, that they do. Um, I mean, these people are professionals in, in the water management community. 
you don't find climate skeptics because um, these people are seeing their reservoirs go down. They're seeing their river flows go down. Um, uh, and so, so they know it. And it's sort of heartening to see these professionals still do the work and um, doing it, doing it with care to avoid stepping on the political landmines, a couple of um, bureaucratic layers above them among the political appointees. But, um, but, you know, these are people I've known a long time, um, and it's been heartening to see, for me to see them, you know, continue to, to take the work seriously, um, even despite the way the political winds in the nation are blowing. Eric, we you know we've, we've been talking about this drought. Um, I follow both of you guys on Twitter, and I really appreciate the information that you you post there. And Eric, you you said a couple days ago that um, there's a quote unquote sneaky drought um, happening in the Colorado River Basin. And I, what does that mean? Well, let me just go. You know, we just finished a winter where um, the the ski areas in in Colorado had some good snow in some places fabulous snow uh, i have I, I haven't confirmed it but but uh, i've been told that the breckenridge ski area which has been around a long time since the 60s had a record snow season uh the, the city of boulder had a record snow season so we thought all right there's plenty of snow but now we're facing maybe a runoff that'll be in the 55 to 60 percent of dorm that's real dry you know, under 70% of average is considered quite dry. Under under 50, you know, when you get down toward 50, it's a it's a big drought year. Uh, and how did things turn around so quickly? And that's why it's a sneaky drought. Nobody was thinking about, oh, man, we're going to have a water problem on the 1st of April. And now six weeks later, we're seeing the forecasts go down. And and I understand there's two basic, re- two or three reasons for that. But one is we had real dry soil conditions because of a lack of a monsoon here last year. And then we've had a dry April. Uh, and uh, recently, uh, not the first part of April, but recently it's been above average temperature. So things can change really, really quickly. And, and I, before, before a few years ago, man, if we had a if we had a good snowpack on April 1st, which we had a decent snowpack this year, everybody was, ah, we're fine. Now they're seeing that that's not necessarily the case. In a matter of six weeks, things can go from average to above average in places to pretty serious, pretty serious dry year. And that's climate change for us, in my view. And it's, it's a whole picture. It's not just one month. Uh, it's everything that's happened since last June. And John, haven't we seen much the same in New Mexico? It, it, April was it, it was a worse snow year farther south, where um, you know the sort of southern southern Rockies, San Juans that feed the Rio Grande, um, wasn't as nice as Breckenridge and Boulder. Um, so it was a bad snow year going in. It wasn't a great snow year going in, and then it got warm and dry um, in April. The, um, the San Juan Basin um, in sort of the April time frame, precipitation, always a dry time of year, extraordinarily dry, 10% of average April across the San Juan Basin, which is, um, feeds the San Juan branch of the Colorado River, and the San Juan Chama Project supplies that come across for um, Albuquerque and Santa Fe and Central New Mexico. We're, we're looking at... Uh, a flow right now in the Rio Grande that is low and dropping. And um, because it's been so warm, if you go down to the southern end of 
the sort of middle, what we call the middle Rio Grande of New Mexico, the stretch between, um, uh, you know, you all up there in Taos and, um, and uh, Elephant Butte Reservoir. You go to the bottom of that, San Marcial, which is right at the head of Elephant Butte Reservoir, and absent some pumping of, of drain water back into the river by the Bureau of Reclamation, the river's main channel would probably be dry right now. So we're, we're going to see a really tough year on the middle Rio Grande, uh, for sure. Uh, in this last little bit that we have here, guys, I wanted to ask you how, um, how does water management on the Rio Grande and in the Rio Grande Basin here in New Mexico mirror um, you know, what's happened along the Colorado? Um, there's the, we've got the Rio Grande compact uh, between New Mexico, Colorado, and Texas. How is our basin different from, say, the Colorado River Basin? So this, John, um, uh, the biggest difference on Grand is this really fundamental difference in terms of dams and storage. So on the Colorado River, you have two giant reservoirs, um, you know, the one they're full store five years of um, the river's flow, roughly. Um, on the Rio Grande, if you look uh, above us here in Albuquerque, we have very little store. So much more dependent on the year flow of the river. Um, that's, I think, the biggest difference. Um, but there's a really interesting difference, which is um, a sort of odd one, which is that um, here in New Mexico and up in Southern Colorado and San Luis Valley, um, we do have irrigation agriculture, but it's much more modest. So the scale of the economic activity associated with the flow on the river is much, much less. That's kind of um, a function of how much water there is and how much water we have the ability to store and use. So on the Rio Grande, we're much more de dependent on year-to-year flows. Um, and in bad years, it's not a whole lot of water for the farmer. And so you haven't seen the same kind of big, large-scale, um, high-dollar um, cultural activity that you see in the Imperial Valley or Yuma. Uh, um, the, the largest area agriculturally on the Rio is actually up in the San Luis Valley up in um, Southern uh, Colorado, good students that I work with, you know, University of New Mexico Well Resources Program, we've been looking at that sort of economic activity. But um, um, the result is, you know, we're sort of poorer and therefore more resilient because um, when when we don't have a lot of water, our farm communities are used to bunkering down, planting less, and having having um, less in the way of harvests. Um, we also have some much more significant problems this basin than they do over in Colorado, um, associated with overpumping of our groundwater, um, especially up in the San Luis Valley and down in southern New Mexico on the Grand, the sort of Hatch and, and um, the valleys, you know, the Las Cruces, um, Salem Hatch area, where we've done a lot of groundwater pumping in order to sustain the farming that is going on, the economic activity that is going on, and some overpumped aquifers. And that groundwater pumping. And the lower part of the river has led to um, litigation, a big suit in the United States Supreme Court, Texas and New Mexico, Texas suits, because they argue that our groundwater down there is depriving them of 
water. So, um, you know, when I say water's not for fighting over, you know, there are restrictions, and Texas versus Mexico is one of those right now. Gotcha. Anything you want to throw in there, Eric? No, I, I, I will just add that I'm not the expert on the Rio Grande, but I will say that that, that, that Colorado River problems don't stop at the boundaries. What happens in the Rio Grande, what happens in the Arkansas and the South Platte, what happens on the Wasatch Front, and what happens in California and with the Central Valley, all of those ultimately impact what we do on the Colorado River. There was this, um, this is John again, um, there was this argument by John Wesley Powell um, more than a century ago that we should set up our governance structures um, in the western States around watersheds, um, right? The boundaries for our governance. Really famously, you know, through this wonderful map showing watersheds, this, how we should perhaps arrange our states or governance in some way. We didn't do that. We didn't listen to Powell. We kind of drew these weird straight lines and <laughs> divided our political interests in, in odd ways. But what we ended up doing instead, because we're taking water over to Denver and here in Albuquerque and the complex pitches in California. In some sense, we created this giant Uber watershed that stretches across these seven states um, system, kind of no one in charge of it. And the best we can do is try to pay attention and work together across these state lines. So um, any any larger lessons that we can leave the listener with as far as um, what comes from your book? Like what are what's what are some of the larger lessons that that you'd like folks to to take from from what you've w- written? You know, you can make short term decisions by ignoring science, but the 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 nature will catch up with you. There you go, John and Eric. I want to thank you guys for joining me today on the Taos Land Trust podcast. We've been talking with. Uh, Eric Kuhn and John Fleck about their book, Science Be Damned, How Ignoring Inconvenient Science Drained the Colorado River. Thank you guys for taking the time. Thank you. You've been listening to the Taos Land Trust Podcast. This podcast was produced and recorded by Jim O'Donnell at the studios of KNCE 93.5 FM in Taos, New Mexico. Edited by Brett Tomadin. If you'd like to support this podcast, please visit www.tauslandtrust.org. This is Jim O'Donnell for the Taos Land Trust. Thank you for joining us.